a number of texts in uh, the scripture, and I'm not going to use any of them because I'm the lead pastor and I changed my mind. <laughs> Sorry to those who make the bulletin. Um, and I want to say a couple things, and then I'm going to actually read the text without giving any commentary, which if you know me, you know is challenging for me, but I'm going to do it. This story that I'm about to read is one that I think many of us learned uh, only part of which means we didn't learn it well in Sunday school. And so I want you to listen to the story and attempt to, to, to clear your imagination and hear it the way Jesus told it. Okay? I'm going to try to. We're in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. You're familiar with the text, but hear it as Jesus told it. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger southern gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father interrupted him and said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant, and he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It is not the story of the prodigal son. It is the story of the two prodigal sons. And what I want us to notice this morning, if you are here last week, you know we're doing a series on money, is that one of the sons believed that spending all of his inheritance would speak to his soul, and it didn't. And the other son believed if he saved everything... Did you notice that? 
You never even killed a young goat for me, the older son says. If he saved everything, that would speak to his soul, and it did. It spoke to his soul and caused him to resent the father and to resent his brother. He can't even say my brother. He says, that son of yours. Do you see what's happening? They're resisting, both sons are resisting the father in remarkably different ways. They're resisting the father heart of God. They're resisting the pursuing love of the father. Notice the father goes out to both of them. The symptom that we see and notice is the way they handled money, but the problem is resisting the father heart of God which longs for you to live a life of life purchased by Jesus, granted in the Holy Spirit's power because God loves and likes us. The gospel frees us from and into. It frees us from thinking that a certain amount of savings could speak to our soul. Do you remember that story from Luke 12 that we looked at last week? A, a very wealthy man continued to do very well. He had several barns, which means for a first century farmer, he was doing quite well. But what he thought was he needed more barns and more savings. And the key to that text, in my opinion, is he thought the savings could speak to his soul. And what we think, and we see ads about this all the time, and there's wisdom in it, except there's a lie in it too. What we think is a certain amount of savings can provide security. Do you know what you want more than security? Freedom. What Thomas Aquinas called liberality. The freedom to live confident in who you are as a follower of God, confident in your role to play in his kingdom. We don't want security as much as freedom. And what happens is we get tired. Just during the greeting time, I heard three stories that wore me out secondhand because of how much pain and sickness and death there is in the world. And what happens in our fatigue is we forget that what we long for is freedom. And we settle for security, which is actually a lie. And notice the man in Luke 12 had savings. It's not that savings is bad, but putting your hope in it is a lie. It will not be able to speak life to your soul. So there were two sons. And they were both prodigals, resisting the father heart of God, one through spending everything on himself, assuming that would speak to his soul, the other one in over-saving. And we see the bitterness and resentment that that actually spoke into his soul. The father, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, frees us from those things into lives of life. See, anyone that believes that God exists, an actual God, not just a more powerful human with relative capricious powers, believes it's his anyway. And so he's entrusted to us different amounts around the room because of the randomness of finance in some respects and because of different skills and things. Some of us are entrusted with more than others. And what the gospel frees us into is worship of him, 
which is giving back to him generously. It's also saving, and there are a number of reasons for that. I'm going to talk about it for a few minutes, and you're going to be like, I didn't show up to church to hear a lecture on saving. That's not what I'm doing. I'm reminding us of the humility, which is not thinking less of ourselves. We'll talk about humility a lot. That we're called into, and why savings is part of that. The gospel frees us from thinking it's all about us or that we're not included. Last week, the title of my sermon was uh, Why You Shouldn't Tithe, and I got a couple of uh, very kind, polite emails saying I didn't answer the question. Let me just clear that up. The reason I titled the sermon that is because planned generosity is better than an assumption of a specific number, and that's it, and you don't ever think about it again. not saying tithing is bad, and I'm not going to try and land the plane about whether the New Testament assumed the tithe or not, because in my opinion, it doesn't answer that question clearly. But the point of, of generosity is to plan and to determine before God and with our closest neighbors, what is ours to do? Yes, with your time. Yes, with your talents and calling. And with your money. And one of those things... Let me back up a second. So the gospel frees us, and as we talk about give and save and spend, and as we talk about training our kids in give and save and spend, you know what we're doing? We're rehearsing the gospel of Jesus. Because God calls us to himself, which means first and foremost, we are worshiping creatures. Then he calls us into agency as someone made in his image. And as a follower of him, you have a role of mercy and justice and love and peace in this world. And you enjoy that agency with your words and with your actions and with what you're good at and with your money. So as we begin to train our children that we give back to God first and then we save and then we spend on whatever we want within reason. We're rehearsing the gospel who, which teaches us how to flourish as a human being. Because what we would do is we would spend on ourselves like the younger son or we would save all of it like an older son thinking that those things would speak to our soul but the gospel speaks to our soul. Rest and peace. And you have a role. So it frees us into good stewardship. A change I made in my life about 10 years ago is I stopped uh, day trading because I'm a pastor and I should not have been spending my time that way. And the worst possible thing could have happened, given some stock by some grandparents and um, the worst possible thing could happen, I actually was kind of good at it just for a little while, for like five minutes. And the reason I tell you that is throughout this room, there's an incredible diversity of skill sets and an incredible diversity of circumstance, which means there's an incredible diversity in what God has asked you to steward. And I love not even looking at that stuff. I have some good friends that are in the industry and a good advisor and I trust them and I don't even look at it anymore. But when I was about 28, 29, I was confident I needed to make a little bit more money, meaning I wasn't confident that God had called me into what he had called me into pastoral ministry, and I thought I needed to supplement that. And not because I was underpaid, just because I was trying to convince myself early in the morning or late at night I could make some extra money. The gospel frees us into good stewardship where we ask the question, what's ours to do? And for some of you, your answer to that would be everything. That's kind of my tendency. And for some of you, you're like, I'm not sure I have much to do. 
Not only does the gospel of Jesus free us from destructive answers to that question, it frees us into a good answer. You are called as a neighbor to the people in your life. You are called as a worshiper. And that includes your words, and that includes your time, that includes your hands and what you're good at, and it includes your money. And in good stewardship, we are rehearsing the gospel. We are remembering that we're loved and known by God, and therefore we're generous. We also know that we save. And you know why? Because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. See that in Luke chapter 12 and in Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 12, the guy that's going to build the extra barns, God then calls him fool. Because your night, this night, your life is required of you. Luke chapter 15, the younger son did not know there was going to be a famine. Or perhaps he would have spent differently. So one of the reasons that we save and teach our children to save is because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Right? Now how much do we save? I don't know. How much do you make? That'd be funny if you all started shouting that out. That'd be so un-American. And I don't expect you to do it. About four friends in my life over the last 20 years that have told me exactly what they make. So humbling. And we got to have a really interesting conversation about what do you do with that? One friend was a, a GI specialist, gastroenterologist specialist. And so he'd spent years in a fellowship program where he made, you know, $30,000 a year. And then he and I moved into our professional lives at the exact same time, where he became a fellow, a fellow with a, not a fellow, uh, he came into full practice as GI, and I became a pastor at the same time. And I was making uh, $45,000 a year, and I got four weeks of vacation and two weeks of study leave, and he had the exact same salary package with a zero. And it was so humbling to him, because he had all this debt, but he's a follower of Jesus, and he's like, the check that I write this week is going to really sting. I was so honored. How much should we save? I don't know. We don't know how wealthy this guy was in Luke chapter 12 that Jesus tells the story about. We don't know how many barns is right because it's a wisdom question. It's a question that we return to over time. It's a question that humbles us. The gospel frees us into good stewardship, which is humbling because we do not know what tomorrow will bring. And this is all a setup by me for one of the sweetest parts of the gospel of Jesus that saving very indirectly and gently reminds us of. I've already said it, but I'm going to say it again. You have role in the kingdom as one made in the image of God. As a daughter or a son of the king, you have a role the gospel not only frees us from sin and from death, it frees us into life. And when we save, we know that that role doesn't end when our vocation either changes or stops. Right? If and when you retire vocationally, you'll still have a role as a lover and a worshiper of God and as a good neighbor. And there will be work for you to do in the kingdom. How many of you know Polly Eden? Polly is 94. And she retired last year from being a teacher's helper in a local school. And then the teacher that she had been serving with unretired. So Polly unretired. 
because she knows she has a role in the kingdom. And her role is to assist our local schools. Man, Polly's funny too. Have you ever hung out with her? The first year that I was here, she was like, I almost had to leave. But then you got a little better as a preacher. And I was able to stay. And something about her delivery just made that really easy to take. As long as you are still on this earth, you have a role in the kingdom. And if you have retired vocationally, you know something that some of us don't know very well, which is that that's the hardest time to remember that you have a role. J. Oswald Sanders, in his book, Spiritual Leadership, calls it convergence. The time when your activity goes down, but your influence can go up. But you're like, but nobody's listening to me. John Eldridge calls it, this, the, uh, as a season of life, the time where you become a sage. You set down your active role, and you become an advisor. And those of you that have done this, either for a season or longer, you're like, nobody listens to me, though. Like, maybe I'm a sage, maybe not. I'm not sure if anyone's listening. It's challenging to remember that the gospel still calls you into agency after the fact. And one of the reasons is we're tired. And one of the reasons is that that the world attempts to convince us that what's glorious about retirement is doing nothing. You are not called to do nothing if you're still here. You're still called to worship God, which is part of how you evangelize and, and, and learn these neighbors. You still have a role with the neighbors God has given you. Family, your actual neighborhoods, your places of of business, whether that's volunteering in retirement or not. So it's a hard life stage to move from worker to advisor, to converge, as Sanders puts it, or to sage, as Eldridge puts it. And, And let me encourage you for a second. Don't mistake pain or don't let pain convince you, be it physical, emotional, or spiritual, that you don't have a role. It's one of the hardest things I watch is when people get just beaten down, literally or metaphorically, by the world, and they they then start to believe the lie that when you get to be a certain age or if you don't have a certain skill set, you no longer have a role in the kingdom. And that pain is real, and I'm I'm not marginalizing it, especially those of us with hidden pain. People can't see it. Don't miss this incredibly life-giving part of the gospel of Jesus, which is that you have a role in the kingdom as an agent of justice, love, reconciliation, peace, all under the heading of neighbor love. Don't mistake curse fatigue, or don't let curse fatigue, I'll explain curse fatigue in a second. Don't let curse fatigue convince you that there isn't a role for you to play in the kingdom, loving God and your Christian neighbors and your non-Christian neighbors. Curse fatigue is you're so exhausted when you read the news by the pain and the death and the sin and the ugliness and the injustice and you're out of energy because you see the curse in so many places and it's so much harder for a human being to see where the kingdom is at work in local gatherings and neighborhoods and parts of the world and parts of the country, it's so much easier as a human being to see the curse, right? It makes the news, first of all. I, I read The Week, you know that magazine? And they, like, there's one section on one page at the very bottom in a box and it says it wasn't all bad. 
And sometimes that's it for good news in like this 65-page magazine. When you see and experience curse fatigue, if you are tired and, and need to rest, rest, but don't let curse fatigue convince you that it's not worth it for you to embrace the agency God has given you. You're like, I don't know what my role is. I've talked about this before. I'll, I'll keep it slow. And if you'd like to talk more about this, it's one of my favorite things. Talk about people's calling. Your calling is as best you can understand it. Your gifts, your circumstances, and your affections. What breaks your heart, what you're actually good at, the neighborhood you actually find yourself in. We put those things into a big ball and then we hold them up to Jesus and say, okay, what's my calling? I know that's kind of metaphorical and some of you love that and for some of you it wasn't tactile enough. We could talk more about that. But I promise you're called into agency. And this is where humility has the other side. So on the one hand, we hear the word humility and it sounds like I'm supposed to think less of myself. Humility is also confidence in your calling. It's confidence in your role. There are things that you're good at that very few other people in the room are good at. There's something you're the best at in this entire room. I don't know how many of us there are in here. 140, 175. And so a true humility doesn't think less of itself and it's confident in what is yours to do. I hope that you ask that question in prayer. I hope that you talk with your good friends about it. And financially speaking, it's part of the reason that we save. I've talked to two good friends in the past week in their 60s that have started to get incredibly politically active. And the earlier portions of their life, they did not think that was theirs to do. Though they, they saw the world the same way and they were bothered by things, they've just been energized. And one of the reasons that they're able to act as agents, whatever you think, I'm not going to get political here, but I'm excited for these two people in their 60s who realize they have a role to play. And part of the reason they're able to do so is because they saved. And that gave them a little bit of cushion to go out and be an agent of what they per, uh, believe to be peace and justice and reconciliation. And gospel frees us into good stewardship because we are called into agency. You are not too old or too slow whether you're on a fixed income or you make money, whether no one seems to listen to you or they can't see your gift set, Jesus has called you not only to himself and eternal security, but into a role in the neighborhood you live in. The gospel frees us into good stewardship because we are called into agency and life. What we want and need is not security. What we want and need is liberality. Freedom to enjoy God. Freedom to learn to love our neighbors well. Freedom to then flourish as a human being. Learning good stewardship as a follower of Jesus doesn't mean you don't get to enjoy what God has asked you to steward. That's the sermon next week. I'm not going to talk about it too much, though it's going to stress me out a lot less than this one to preach. I said that last week. It's still true. That liberality, as Aquinas called it, comes from a right order of how we do these things. We begin with God and generosity towards Him. 
then we save because we're humble. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. And then we enjoy, and that is the flourishing life. Freed from the cynicism the older brother had in Luke 15. Freed from the lie that if we had every little thing our heart ever desired, that would be able to speak to our soul. Freed into good stewardship wherein we flourish as a God worshiper, as one who is in a neighborhood and has a role, and as an individual who is liked and loved and found and known by God because of the work of Christ who has the Holy Spirit. Pray with me. Father in heaven, would you help us not run from you as the two sons did, either from believing it's all about us or that there is no enjoyment as a child of the king. Would you remind us in this very moment that you're for us, that the proof that you're for us is the incarnation of Jesus, the life and the teachings of Jesus, his death on a cross, and then his resurrection. It calls us from lives of death into lives of life. Would you help us to see the great honor that you have asked us to steward both skills and time, and also money. And would you help us to do that well? Amen.